This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts. Welcome to the Carbon Connection Podcast. It's not too late to change the conversation about climate change from doom and gloom to a conversation about possibility. This podcast is a curated selection of episodes that we just had to share with you. The Carbon Connection is about the many dimensions of climate change and the conversations people are having across the globe. It's about hope, community, advocacy, science, and changing our future. Hello, I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of The Goodness Exchange and a super proud member of the Carbon Almanac Network. And today I want to recommend a fabulous podcast in general. It's called For What It's Earth and one particular episode. So For What It's Earth is just this fabulous podcast that breaks the science and we can what we can do to affect climate change in the environment into bite-sized bits. And it's super just uplifting. They're really approachable, nice people, and they harness the, the power of what we can do in positive ways. The particular episode I'm recommending is with Steve Simpson on Coral Reefs, Global Change, Eco-Grief, and Hope. Now, don't that, let that statement eco-grief send you away because the this is a positive episode full of helpful tips and hope, lots of hope. And Steve was part of the, um, the influential Blue Planet 2 series, so he knows his stuff. All right, so have a great time. Enjoy this. It's super. Hello and welcome to For What It's Earth, the podcast that takes a deep dive into all things nature, environment and sustainability. Each week we tackle a different topic and we ask both what is going on here and is there anything that you and I can do about it? My name is Emma and this week I'm genuinely really excited to share this episode with you. Regular listeners will know that Lloyd is still off on his podternity leave after becoming a dad recently, so I'm steering the good ship for what it's earth today. And I'm sharing a conversation that I had with Professor Steve Simpson, who is a marine biologist and a science communicator. Steve's research looks at global change in the oceans and quite brilliantly also focuses on finding solutions to some of the biggest problems that we face, like underwater noise pollution. So we chatted a lot about his work, but I also found it really interesting that the current of conversation took us in the direction of eco-grief and the things that give Steve hope, which kind of underpins most conversations that I have with people working in the environmental research sector at the moment. And we also took a quick swim through Steve's communications career and the value of environment and natural history public communications, because you know what, you might just have spotted him on an episode of BBC's Blue Planet 2. And hey, hopefully I got enough fish or ocean themed puns in the intro to make Lloyd proud. I hope you enjoy it. Steve, hello. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing? It's great to see you, Emma. Yeah, really good. Um, Thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been an awfully long time and I feel like we finally managed to tempt you onto the podcast. I'm I'm so sad Lloyd couldn't be here today as well because he was was very keen. (laughs) So listen, I gave you about 30 seconds warning for this, but we do start every episode just by asking what one good thing have you done for the planet this week and guests are no exception. So have you you got something? Did you manage to come up with an idea? 
Yes. So, so actually, I, you'll remember Storm Arwen last weekend, mm. um, which uh, coincided with recycling day on our road, which meant that we, we were actually away for the weekend and came back and it looked like a tornado had gone down the street. <laughs> So I took my daughter out and she's doing her uh, Duke of Edinburgh at the moment. And uh, we went and absolutely blitzed the neighbourhood. Um, That's and fantastic. Today, really excitingly, the recycling vans all came round and, and took it all away. So we were able to turn what was a, what was a kind of post-apocalyptic scene <laughs> into now a beautiful, pristine neighbourhood. So we'll see how long that lasts. That's um, but amazing. But it felt, felt very good to see all of that recycling heading back to the recycling depot rather than down the drains. And full brownie points to your daughter as well. That's, that's fantastic. I love Absolutely, that. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. That's really good. Okay, mine is not as cool, but oh. um, do you know what? Our guests tend to do better than us, but it's because we have to do another one every week that they start <laughs> yeah. to get a little bit tenuous. Um, when I was chatting to Lloyd um, last week, he was saying how he was looking for um, like a new baby carrier one of those mm. ones that you wear. Oh, um, yeah. You can tell I don't have kids. <laughs> and they've basically been looking to get things secondhand where they can try and make yeah. this you know, new baby nice and eco. Mm, mm. And uh, I was in a charity shop and I spotted one. So oh, I FaceTimed cool. Lloyd and was like, is this the thing that you need? And you're like, yes, <laughs> get it now. It's like 70 quid off its normal price. Amazing. Um, so I've managed to help Lloyd have one less thing that he's bought new. Oh, that's wonderful. And and I think that that probably means that Auntie Emma is going to get to carry the baby next time you find it. Because there is nothing nicer oh. than having that. It's like a hot water bottle, basically, oh, strapped to your back so. or to your chest. Yeah, so it, it's <laughs> particularly through the winter. It's a, it's a really nice connection that you get That's with those baby point. carriers. That's yeah, such and, a good point. Lloyd will, next time I Skype him, Lloyd will have him strapped to his stomach just because it's winter and it's cold. Well, that's right. If, if he combines that with one of those big bouncing balls, you know, that you can sit on. <laughs> Then you can work through the night and the, the the baby will sleep like a dream. Is this something um, you've done? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely did it with both of mine. It was how, just, many, it's... how many papers have you written where the baby <laughs> should really be a co-author? Yeah, should really be the lead author. That's right, the inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, several. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, I'm, I'm going to have to insist that Lloyd does that. Yeah. Right, we're not, I mean, we're not here to talk about babies. Brilliant though they are. We're here to talk about your research. So we are going to have a little bit of a look at some of the issues facing the marine environment that you're looking into and some of the potential solutions which you're kind of working on. And also, I can't wait to talk to you a little bit about your role in science communication as well, because you've kind of, you've kind of drifted into two, I say drifted like you haven't planned it, but you've um, strategically marched into two fields, uh, which are very nice to marry up. So let's, let's start with the science. So Lloyd and I, um, well, we we studied with you in Exeter um, an embarrassing number of years ago. Now I'm not going to I'm not going to do that maths um, and kind of encountered you on the world's jammiest field trip to the Bahamas, which I am almost embarrassed to tell people that we did now, but was probably one of my favourite things about university, uh, where we were having a look at the kind of juvenile reef fish and their habitats and their life cycles and what they do and how they how they're doing basically. Mm. So, in a nutshell if possible, because I know you mm. do a lot of different things. How would you kind of elevate a pitch your research, you know, on coral reefs and on anthropogenic noise and bioacoustics? Well, so first of all, before I elevate a pitch, I'll be honest, and I've drifted all my life. So none of this is strategy. And, and, <laughs> and I think that's actually a really important lesson to everybody. When that makes they, me feel so much better. Absolutely. You just, if you go with the flow, then actually really good things happen. Um, you know, and I think 
the the harder the harder you work the luckier you become so obviously keeping keeping going with things and putting the effort in is worthwhile um but then also note you know identifying when someone throws you a rope you see it as a rope um i think is really valuable so i'm what i'm going to talk about is definitely not strategy but it is a very (laughs) lucky series of events that have meant that um you know I'm, i'm privileged to be able to run a research group at the university of bristol having recently moved up from exeter of about 15 postdoctoral fellows, postdoctorate uh, researchers, PhD students and master's students. And then also to teach marine biology to hundreds of undergraduates. So that probably is my official day job, that I'm a lecturer at a university and I run a research group uh, in various different marine biology projects. And I'll talk about those uh, in a minute. Um, and then the other thing that I'm doing at the moment is developing a master's course in science communication, thinking about how we really deliver science, but listen to society to understand what the scientific needs are that we really should be asking as well. Um, and so we can obviously explore that in a bit of detail. In terms of the reason that we were in the Bahamas, it's because a lot of my research is tropical marine ecology. Now, that might just sound like a, a, a cheap excuse for a good holiday, <laughs> But actually, as a marine biologist, I think if you look around the world, you'll realise that many marine biologists have spent time working on coral reefs. And one of the reasons for that is that it really is an underwater laboratory. You can spend hours and hours underwater in clear water, in warm water. So it means that you're in an environment that is actually comfortable to work in. And that's really different. Not just comfortable, quite delightful. Uh, Quite lovely, absolutely. (laughs) The other, so, so that's really important if you're doing behavioral studies or you're running long term manipulative experiments that you can actually get in there and spend more than 20 minutes before <laughs> you're frozen. Um, or it's so dark or murky that you can't really see what's happening. Um, the other thing is that the animals that live on a coral reef, they're described as biodiverse, uh, biodiversity hotspots, the rainforests of the sea. Mm. These are bustling cities of life, which the, animals very quickly become attuned to you being there and 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 ignore you and get on with their normal lives so as a place to be able to observe animal behavior is actually a very very exciting environment it's it's um you know certainly easier to to observe life than it is in a rainforest where most animals are either hidden in the canopy or they are very deeply camouflaged so they're difficult to find on a coral reef, you've got these beautiful, brightly coloured animals, um, mainly fish swimming around, interacting with each other. Um, and we do quite a lot of work on the understanding the underpinning behaviours, things like cleaning stations where fish queue up to go and get the parasites picked off them by the cleaner fish. Um, or, Made popular um, by the film Shark Tale. Absolutely, yeah. Was it yeah, Shark Tale? Right. I think you've yeah, heard Yeah, it was. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah, absolutely. That just flashed or, very vividly back into my mind. <laughs> Exactly. Or Finding Nemo, we do a lot of work with clownfish because, again, you've got these incredible animal systems that you can study uh, close up. You can really start to pick apart the behaviours of the clownfish. Um, And then, you know, sadly, one of the other reasons we study coral reefs is because they, they are threatened by a whole range of different environmental challenges. And so by understanding the fabric of a, a cleaning station society, or understanding how a colony of clownfish interact with each other, you can then observe how that changes when the environmental stresses are present. 
Um, so, so you have a working biological ecological model, and then you can look at disturbance. So we are we're lucky to be able to still discover really new aspects of natural history on a coral mm. reef. But they're also then really useful um, study systems to look at environmental change. And those can be local changes. So things like overfishing or dynamite fishing or sediment, sediment flowing out of rivers or pollution or plastics or um, sun cream. Lots of lots mm. of these contemporary stresses that we're realizing at a local scale can be quite um, devastating. But then also to be able to think about the big global stresses, things like um, warming seas, ocean acidification, the increased uh, prevalence of storms, and to see how the environment changes with those. So that's probably, in a nutshell, what we study. We study the fabric of the coral reef ecosystem Mm. to understand natural history, and then to be able to look at not just what are the problems with global change, but to use that understanding to actually find what are the solutions. You know, and the really exciting thing is that I think the students that I'm lucky to have in my group now are so determined to make a positive difference mm. that they're, they're not willing to simply look at natural history in a rapidly changing world and, and focus on the natural history. It, it becomes lazy science to just be finding another problem in the world. Mm. So they're not retreating to that kind of opportunity to just keep publishing, you know, their big headlines, mm. global reefs um, in, in crisis. But they're really looking to flip that knowledge to find solutions. Is that a symptom um, of how bad things are becoming, the, the problems that they're seeing? No, I, I don't think so, actually. I think, I think it's more because I don't think it's that bad. I'm definitely an ocean optimist. Yes. Okay. Well, so... <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. The future is still up for grabs. Okay. Yeah. And I really think that we can we can do the right thing and and take our planet back into a much more positive uh, trajectory where humans live in harmony with nature rather than at war with it. Nice. Um but I think it's more that what we've certainly realized in our group and there's there's a kind of global conversation about this is that when you study impacted ecosystems whether it's you know um, deforestation or it's desertification uh, of savannas or whether it's droughts or whatever you can simply suffer what we call eco grief Mm -hmm. in a negative way you can come back from a field trip and you can be uh, numb you can be in denial you can even feel just a a crippling sense of guilt Mm -hmm. by it because you've contributed to it Um, directly and indirectly but actually grief doesn't just have those negative elements to it it's also got a healing process and if you look at how grief is is managed um, either in a personal context or in in the workplace in other professions so say the emergency services um, or the medical profession then you can channel those emotions to actually start to build um, an, a kind of fire in your belly, anger, mm. and that use that fire to then want to go and find solutions. Um, it can build resolve. It can make you more committed, more determined to actually try and uh, fix the problems that you've been seeing rather than just charting mm. them and documenting them. So I think there's definitely a, a, a next generation where eco-grief is, is understood 
and eco-anxiety no longer becomes a paralyzing experience. It becomes the fuel mm. to the fire to actually make things um, change for the better. I think that's really um, exciting because we often see or hear about eco-anxiety in the context of like young activists and people taking to the streets. And it's really exciting to hear that it's kind of reflected in academia and in, like you said, driving another industry of change, not just yeah. sitting on motorways and shouting and using your voice in that way, but physically trying to get some science underpins decent solutions that could have a big impact that's that's really that's filled me with a little bit of hope that has yeah well it fills me with a lot of hope Mm. every day you know it it really heartens me that a a bit like i mean we saw it at cop 26 didn't we where the the voice of some of the young people Mm. was phenomenal and you just kind of wish that we could jump the the kind of governance system forward about 30 years to have those people in place now yeah but actually just those messages and that energy and the commitment and determination i think fuels even some of the um older parts of our uh, society um to believe and to be willing to make positive changes so certainly what we are doing is using knowledge to find solutions and i can give you a couple of examples of that absolutely um, yeah wait no so, actually hang on let's save the solutions okay. a bit let's because okay. we haven't even covered the background the the some of some of the problems um mm. we've done an episode before on anthropogenic noise so i'll mm. nod everyone back to that one um because yeah. we did talk a little bit about that in the marine environment and i think we probably brown nosed you a little bit in that one too <laughs> um but you mentioned at the beginning that one of the things that you're doing you're, you're measuring and you're observing disturbance uh and ecosystem change so how are you actually going about doing that? What are you measuring and how are you finding out what is changing? Yeah, okay. So um, it depends really on on the, the system that we're studying. So when we study coral reefs, then it is really, you know, it's in some ways shocking to see how quickly a coral reef ecosystem can change. And some of the most kind of devastating examples we've witnessed over the last 10 years have been from bleaching events. So marine heat waves where the water temperature, the water tends to sit in one location and keep warming rather than being flushed through by ocean currents. Um, And on the Great Barrier Reef where we've done a lot of our work, we saw this heat spike in 2015 and then 2016. Water temperatures were a couple of degrees, three degrees warmer than they would be normally for several weeks. And as a result, the corals cooked. They really just couldn't Mm. tolerate that warm temperature and bleached and then died. And so going to sites where you've been studying the percentage of coral cover, the diversity of the fish assemblage, the um, levels of natural herbivory, lots of the measures that you take on a coral reef to understand why it's healthy. It's all these things that make up the complex thriving ecosystem of a coral reef Mm. you see then eroding away lots of the herbivores being lost due to um, the bleaching event seaweed starting to proliferate and we see that happen kind of on a more chronic level in areas where you've got high levels of overfishing so gradually a fishing community will initially take the big predators once the big predators are gone the smaller predators are the target species Once they've gone, then you move on to the kind of generalist feeders that will still take a bait. And once they're gone, then you trap the herbivores. So you're gradually fishing down the food chain Mm. until you end up removing the the fish that clear the seaweeds from the reef and give the corals space to grow. And once they're gone, then really the coral's got no defence mechanism. 
So again, whether it's from an acute event like bleaching or a chronic event like overfishing over years, you see that transition from a brightly coloured, diverse environment to a much more um, kind of sepia, mm. sepia-looking graveyard of dead coral structure. And that's really the, the story of coral reefs through a whole range of different potential underpinning stresses that mean that a lot of the world's coral reefs are in trouble. We do study that. We work alongside teams around the world that build long-term data series to be able to look at gradual change through time. And that can be fairly sad, certainly when it's an acute event like the bleaching and you go back and you expect to find the very, you know, the individual Mm. fish that you know and love. And you find that not only they've gone, but the habitat they lived in has gone too. Hold up, are you telling me that you have specific fish friends at your field sites? Well, absolutely. I mean, a a real classic is Percy, who you might remember from Blue Planet 2, the um, wrasse that can smash open the clamshells on the side of a a coral anvil. I mean, that was amazing. You know, but that was a fish that you could go and reliably find and he'd be out. um, He uh, collects clams, takes them back to the coral anvil. And after the bleaching, we went back and found I mean, thankfully, Percy was still there and his coral anvil oh. was there, but the rest of the reef had crumbled around him. He was and it waiting just looked for you. Like, well, he was like, yeah, I've got to see Steve was, again. Yeah, you've got to see Steve, but, I, but I've, I've lost my home. Yeah. You know? So in that sense, it can, be, it can be really quite sad when you see the, the fragility of the ecosystem once it's under stress. So after I went to the Bahamas with you and the rest mm. of the team, um, went to go and get my paddy because I just that was so that oh, yeah. was my first experience of kind of snorkeling on a coral reef and it was just amazing I, I appreciate that it was incredibly jammy and privileged to be there but it was a real oh my goodness the marine environment is incredible moment mm. um, so I went to go and get my open water paddy and I mm-hmm. did that in Thailand and I remember mm-hmm. thinking hey the, the reefs here are quite cool I kind of remember them being busier in the Bahamas, and then I dived mm. off the Gilly Islands in Bali. I know, following oh, the classic wow. route of yeah. all gap year students. <laughs> but there was so much dead yeah. bleached coral. And that was one of the first times where I kind of, because I'd gone into it thinking, this is going to be absolutely amazing. And, and it was, mm. but kind of surfacing and thinking, or, or feeling probably what was one of my first experiences of like eco guilt and anxiety and yeah. thinking, oh, yeah. Ooh, it was not. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just looks sad. It looks. It is a graveyard, and it's ab- it abundantly clear that it is a graveyard. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and it's so 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 clear and on display when it's a coral reef, um, and you're able to swim over that reef, and and you do come back numb. You know, we realised that we we were coming back having had some pretty negative emotional uh, spiritual experiences. Mm by trying to conduct the science that we were doing um, and realised that that was something we needed to be much more conscious of, to look out for each other. Um, you know, the, the easiest thing you can do there is to walk away mm. and say, right, I don't want to work on coral reefs anymore. But that's not what coral reefs need. It's not what no. the world needs for us to be walking away from the, from the challenge. So do you find trying to seek solutions is your biggest kind of um, way of dealing with this, this grief that you're experiencing with your team? Yeah, definitely. You know, it's it's a channel for the yeah. for the energy that you that you're experiencing, and I think it's really important to find outlets. Mm. You know, sometimes you do just need to go and clear your head, go for a surf, or go camping, or something, and mm. that helps. And we do we you know we deliberately go and do that as a research group, just so that we can 
look out for each other, make sure that we're all okay, and be able to process some of the the things we've witnessed and the feelings that we're experiencing as a result. But it's really exciting when you then think that the knowledge that you're building doesn't have to only be a a sad story of decline. Mm. So uh, I guess a a couple of uh, really nice examples. One of them, you mentioned that we're interested in noise pollution, anthropogenic noise Mm. in the ocean. And quite often, if we were designing an experiment, we would go to an area where we would have fairly quiet conditions. So there's our control um, for our experiment. Mm -hmm. And then at some of the locations in the experiment, we would then drive boats. We would add anthropogenic noise. And we'd find that that noise can have really quite worrying effects on the behaviour of the fish, their ability to breed, their ability to be able to respond to predators. But if you flip that, what you realise is that in areas where you've got lots of noise, if you take the noise away, then those issues are no, no longer um, are having a negative effect. And so what the nice thing with working on noise is that you don't have to cease all boat activity in the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park. Mm. You can keep a boat either uh, a few uh, tens or even hundreds of metres away from the reef and then that reef isn't exposed to the boat noise in a way that the, the fish mm. are going to be affected. Or when you're moving boats near to reefs, then you slow down. Or, I mean, in lots of ways, if all we did was slow down, the world would be a better place. I think that's the headline. But, that's the headline yeah. of this episode. Yep. So, 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 so slow marine biology, uh, like <laughs> slow radio or slow TV, where you, where you do actually just appreciate the environment, but you realise the reason that you're slowing down or just giving the reef a wider berth is because you, you are taking away directly your negative impact in the environment. So that's something that we've now been doing. We've, we've been testing buffer zones and found that we can increase the output reproductive output of fish through a breeding season simply by giving them a bit of distance it's fantastic it's such Um, a simple like you said it's such a simple solution but as soon as you've got that science locked in you can actually change you know policy or or local kind of local restrictions rather than yeah you know what i mean you know and it's about it's about building a bit of awareness because so we're we're doing some work in the uk at the moment with um uh stand-up paddleboarding companies and 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 communities where stand-up paddleboarding is, you know, rapidly growing mm. uh, marine leisure activity. It's a wonderful way to go and spend some time on the ocean and to be able to um, get to locations that possibly you wouldn't even yeah. be able to get a boat to. So it's a great way of adventuring. Um, and one of the real benefits of it is that you can get quite close to marine life. Mm. Now, really sadly, what that means is that done in the wrong way, you can go and disturb marine life. You can go seal bothering, can't you? And you can go seal bothering, um, which has been an issue in Devon. Um, You know, last year I was in uh, Cornwall and just was watching two or three people, a bit like kids in Trafalgar Square chasing the the pigeons. pigeons. (laughs) But there were all these these seabirds on the water and they were finding great fun just kind of uh, paddling as fast as they could to make them all have to get up and fly away. And so obviously there are some, some, some fairly easy ways that we can behave so that we take those problems away. But we can also then increase our opportunity to actually see wildlife. If you make a lot of noise paddling up to the edge of a cliff to go and watch seabirds, they'll probably fly off. Mm. But if you approach quietly, then they'll all be there and they'll get used to you being there and they'll, they'll give you a wonderful um, natural experience. Um, so just thinking about the guidelines that you might follow 
uh, voluntary guidelines, doesn't mm. have to be law, that just allows people to be able to get more out of their engagement with nature. And you're not going to be able to convince everybody. No. But I think the vast majority of people are actually doing it for the right reason. They want to go and experience nature. Well, particularly when it's, you know, when the guidelines are something that's uh, to uh, is a win-win. It's a win for them because yeah. they actually get an even more enhanced experience in connecting with nature. And they are also probably very happy about the fact that they're doing less damage to the environment, which they might yeah. not have known about otherwise. Yeah. You can't really argue with that logic, can you? No, you can't. You can't. You know, and, and, and it is really nice when you can build the scientific evidence that doesn't just show that there's a problem, but shows what a difference your better behaviour can make. Um, but also it means that you know that, you know, even the animals you can't see, you're giving them a better chance of being able to reproduce, a better chance of not being picked off by a predator when actually they were perfectly healthy. They were just distracted by the, the disturbance that you're creating. So that's definitely, you know, a, a really nice way that we can take knowledge and turn it into a solution. The, the other thing that we've been working on a lot over the last couple of years, and this is how I first got interested in underwater sound, mm. was that when you go to a coral reef, what you probably don't appreciate when you first look at it is that almost every animal that you see, whether it's the coral, the crab, the lobster, or all the many thousands of species of fish that you see, Almost all of them spent the first bit of their life out at sea mm. in the plankton as tiny free-swimming larvae. And one of the things that we've realised over the last 20 years or so is that sound plays a really important part in them finding a place to go and make their home. So the reef is a bustling city full of life. Lots of that life makes noise. So the coral reef is this cacophony of noise. Mm. And that sound gives a really good indication, while still being out at sea, of what kind of community lives there. And we realised that lots of fish, lots of invertebrates can use that sound to go and um, locate the reef and then select where to make their home and then and then settle and spend the rest of their life. So it's a bit like, I mean, you imagine if you wanted to move to a new city mm. and you didn't know where to live, you probably wouldn't just walk straight in through the, the city gates and put your bag down and call that your home you'd get on you'd probably get online you'd do a bit of research you'd explore you'd your neighborhoods, wouldn't you? You know, yeah. yeah exactly so you do a bit of research to work out where you want to live before you make it your home now that's you doing that as an adult what these poor fish and invertebrates have to do is somehow after about two or three weeks of life make the decision about where they're going to live for the next 10 20 30 years amazing and they do that largely using the soundscape mm. as their as their roadmap now sadly when we were on the great barrier reef after the bleaching we realized that the reef had gone quiet and that was one of the most um poignant uh, learnings really was that we'd first discovered sound was important to fish on coral reefs but then when we played back recordings of the reef after the bleaching mm. we found that fish weren't interested in it at all so they the not only the cue that they used to find home was no longer there, but this scientific discovery that we'd made 15 years ago was no longer valid. Mm. The, the reef was about a quarter as loud as it was before the bleaching. Um, it was less diverse. It was less complex. And lots of the animal sounds that we expect to hear in it had, had gone. Um, and, and that was really, at the time, a really, really sad discovery. Mm. But what we then realised, because in our control for our experiment, and it comes back to what is your control <laughs> and what is your treatment when you design your experiment? 
our control was recordings before the bleaching mm. because we know that those are attractive to to fish and when we played those recordings the fish were still really excited by them and came and settled at reefs that had the historic golden oldies of when the reef was healthy I love this kind of subtle trickery, attempting fish so, back to repopulate yeah. an area to then eventually create those sounds again to be left. I, I think that's one of well, my favourite things from your research. Yeah, so, the, you know, we flipped it on its head and that's what we now call acoustic enrichment. We can play the sounds of a healthy reef in an area that you're trying to recover. Call the fish in, call in the next generation, they make it their home and then the reef starts to pick up again and the community rebuilds. So, What's a time frame for that? Like how... Do you have to leave it there for a couple of years? Is it a couple of seasons before you start to see quite significant? We we uh, ran an experiment on the Great Barrier Reef. Tim Gordon, a PhD student of mine, ran an experiment over three months where he found that he could rebuild the fish communities and really see the diversity of the fish increase, the numbers of fish um, and the different trophic guilds, the different groups of fish that perform different functions within the ecosystem. Um, recover within three months. Actually, we think that you could do it in shorter periods of time because most fish settle on the new moon when it's super dark. So it's the safest time to come into the reef because nothing can see you. It's super dark during the new moon. Yeah. And so probably about five days each month is all it takes to be able to cool these fish. And we now find that it's the same is true for coral, for uh, lobsters, for crabs and so on. You can call them in just around the new moons each month. And then uh, start to superstock your either your restoration reef or the area that you've now established as a marine protected area. You recently told me about a project where you partnered with a, a team that was sailing to COP26, right? And you mm, gave them a yeah. bunch of microphones to hang off the yeah. side of the. So, so this definitely wasn't in coral reef waters. Well, tropical coral <laughs> reef waters. Yeah, yeah. This was yeah. off the coast of the UK. So tell me about this. This was brilliant. Yeah, great stuff. Um, so that this was a sailing crew that were um, sailing from Brighton. Well, I call them a sailing crew. They were a crew of people who didn't know how to sail. Oh, so they amazing. were learning to sail we're as to they a went. Brilliant start. Absolutely, yes. And they went from Brighton to Glasgow, but via lots of the most iconic marine ecosystems in the UK, in the British Isles, actually. And they went to seagrass beds, they went to big kelp beds, they went to merle beds. Mm -hmm. So they did take in some really interesting cold water marine ecosystems. They also went to some of the voluntary marine reserves, so Lundy Island Mm. in the Bristol Channel um, and um, uh, the Isle of Arran voluntary marine reserves. So they were looking at the importance of um, marine protected areas. And they went to some of the restoration sites where we now realise that we can rebuild seagrasses, we can rebuild kelp beds. um, And they had a look at some of those. The challenge that you have in the UK or in British waters, in cold water environments, is that if you go snorkelling, you might be lucky and have visibility that means that you can see for two or three metres. But you don't often have an opportunity to really get a feel for what's living in that environment. If you're in the middle of the Irish Sea at night then you're not going to see anything. (laughs) No. So with the hydrophones, these underwater microphones that they took with them, they were able to, whether they were on anchor, so they were in a port or in a harbour or in a bay, or they were actually underway, they were sailing, they could tow these hydrophones or drop them over the side and instantly they connected with that marine environment. 
and they could hear all sorts of really cool sounds. One of the things they were looking for were snapping shrimps. Mm. So snapping shrimps are slightly tropical, warmer water, shrimps about the size of your thumb, and they've got a claw about the size of your thumbnail that can rapidly open and then push forward a bubble which implodes in the water Mm. and makes a loud bang. And what we were interested in is how far north they could detect snapping shrimp. It's a classic sound, so if you hear it, Mm, it, it, it's not going to be anything else. And amazingly, there were reports that had snapping shrimp going up to North Wales, but they were finding snapping shrimp up into Belfast Bay, Northern Ireland, and even right up into the Hebrides. So it was a it was a useful piece of science that they were able to do because it meant that we could map the extent of snapping shrimp and demonstrate at COP that as the waters have been warming, then it's providing the the thermal niche that these um, snapping shrimp need for survival um, right the way up into the islands of Scotland. And they're now going to be coming round the North Sea, so round the East Coast. So it'll be really interesting to see where the snapping shrimp uh, start and end as they go through the through the um, North Sea. But it's been really exciting because this is a bunch of non-sailors and definitely non-acousticians that have done possibly one of the most ambitious acoustic transects. So cool. So and it cool. opens it up to anybody, you know, these, mm. these recorders. Gives me hope. Yeah, absolutely. These recorders are fairly simple to use. They're, they're relatively cheap now. People are now buying them because they're interested in what they can hear when they go fishing or mm. when they go kayaking. Um, and this was my next question. I have a kayak there and I'm keen. Perfect. Can I just, can I just drop, a, drop one of these off the side of a kayak next time I'm down the coast in Cornwall or something? Is that useful it's really useful i mean it's useful for you because it's going to connect you with what's down there but it's also really valuable to scientists because we can only get to so many places and if we've got equipment that's getting to many other locations around the world and it's going back to the same place time and time again so we get the spatial coverage and we also Mm. get the longer time series then we can really understand change and particularly things like distribution shifts, range shifts of species. So could we turn this into a big citizen science mission? That's the Is dr- that the plan? That's the dream. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. And, and that's the citizen scientist not only taking the recording, but also then you could be, you know, sat in your bedroom in, uh, uh, I don't know, in Colorado and decide that you actually want to spend the night in the Indian Ocean. And oh. you can you can then either be the only person on the planet listening live to a recording that's coming from the <laughs> from so the cool. Indian Ocean. Or you could find that actually there's 20 people online. You've someone in New Zealand, there's someone out in Fiji. And as a team, you can be listening to those recordings and actually getting really useful data from them. So that's definitely the dream over the next few years that we get. Oh, we get really cool. We get these um, listening stations that anyone can tune into. Mm. And then by tuning in and knowing what to score, what to write down, they can actually be collecting data 24-7 through the day, through the night, through the different seasons. Oh, that's, that is immensely exciting. I can kind of almost imagine it as well as like an art installation, maybe in museums and things where people can just wander through it unexpectedly and think uh, and find themselves, like you said, at the bottom of the Indian Ocean, just listening to Listening to, oh, I love that a lot. That's very cool. Look at the smile on your face. You've got such a cool job. Well, it's... uh, The projects uh, you're involved in are brilliant. You mentioned art, actually, and I think that's been one of the most exciting aspects is that when you start looking at sound, you realise, I mean, we're really acoustic 
creatures, even though we think we're very visual. Mm. But I challenge you to walk into a uh, a nightclub where, where it's a silent disco. So you've got the flashing lights, but you mm. can't hear anything. You're not going to start dancing. You might watch the light show, no. but, but it doesn't make you dance. <laughs> you could walk into a dark and dingy room where the sound is playing and, and it's irresistible. You know, yeah. we're, we're acoustic animals and sound changes our, our emotion. It changes our behavior it changes our ability to stand still and that's the same for all the animals in the ocean they're locked into their soundscape and that soundscape is giving meaning to their existence it's providing information that is that is you know critical to their survival um and so what we found is that when we work with either acoustic artists or musicians um that we're able to explain some of the science that we work on in ways that doesn't mean showing people a graph, doesn't mm. mean trying to explain the the, out, the outcome of a complex statistical model. It's just really obvious. If you play the soundscape of the Great Barrier Reef before the bleaching and then after the be- bleaching, people's eyes are welling up because you can hear so powerful. more than even you can see or show in, in photographs. You can hear the difference and it, instantly makes you realize how that environment has changed so one one thing that's been really exciting has been a whole range of uh, of musicians and artists working with our recordings using that as the raw material and um, we've got a symphony that we're working uh, on with a festival chorus um, uh, oh, and wow. orchestra and with a composer in, in Australia that's going to premiere next year and and the team that went to COP actually gave a lot of their recordings from around the British Isles to a musician who turned them into a track which the world leaders all heard as they walked into the main arena so you oh, know what it's, an amazing opportunity yeah mm-hmm. as, a, as a form of communication to be able to use natural soundscapes I think it's really quite powerful I think that you should aim for some kind of Christmas number one <laughs> perhaps we don't have time now but right. imagine if we could imagine the, the depth of conversation and the extent of conversation we could put across <laughs> to the public if they suddenly realised that their Christmas number one was actually generated by fish entirely natural sounds yeah absolutely <laughs> wouldn't that be amazing that's a world that I would like to live in that's fantastic. Um, okay, so on on the subject of kind of comms and communicating mm. with people, um, this is kind of the other arm of what you do. Mm. And you, you you name dropped it a little bit earlier. Mm. How did you end up working on massive blue chip documentaries like things like BBC's Blue Planet Two? Yeah, um, I guess I'm lucky in that I live in Bristol, and so a lot of the uh, the best natural history films are made in Bristol. Mm. Um, so it's all happening kind of on my doorstep which is really really fun but I think there's a grow there was a growing realization that soundscapes were an important part of the ocean world and so when Blue Planet 2 was made there was a much stronger interest in getting natural soundscapes into the sequences so I was able to advise and and lend out equipment my equipment now spends a lot of time oh, cool. flying around the world going to these different shoots um I also had worked for several years in lots of different ways with one of the uh, producers. So that was one of the real privileges to sit ah, down lovely. with, with yeah. John, Jonathan Smith with a, uh, a blank piece of paper and actually try and map out what the Coral Reef episode might look like. And so that was, you know, it was, it was a fabulous kind of uh, several year experience to see blank pieces of paper turned into mm. the most stunning films with then wonderful narration from Sir David Attenborough. 
And so getting involved in some of the later script writing and uh, the science check, really, the fact checking of the science at the point of narration um, was really interesting to see it from start to finish as a process. You know, and and then to realise that what we were doing was not just making a beautiful film, but raising awareness about some of the big issues, the confidence that the BBC had to put some of the negative uh, seemingly negative, worrying current state of the ocean stories into those films and to see this global response of people mm. who had either developed for the first time a love of the ocean or it had refreshed their their passion for the marine environment to want to get involved, to want to think about ways that they could, on a personal level, change their behaviour, change the packaging of the food that they were buying, change the clothes they were wearing, change the mm. transport that they were using, the decisions they were making about what to eat. It was really exciting to see this global awareness on the back of a film that really is showing the beauty of the ocean. Oh, absolutely. I mean, at the time it was turned the Blue Planet to effect, wasn't mm. it? Just because we saw this massive groundswell of the general public suddenly saying absolutely not to yeah. plastic straws yeah. um, and other things like that. And I just thought that was brilliant. But I mean, I'm not very embedded in that world, but of the wildlife filmmakers that I mm. speak to and have been involved with, it, it feels like in the last five, 10 years, you've gone from a situation where it was the risk, as you said, to start putting these controversial or was seen mm. as controversial at the time, mm. putting these conservation messages out. And now it's almost an obligation and you can't no nobody seems to feel as though you can put anything together without acknowledging some yeah. of the issues that we're facing in our environment and i think that's really positive and it's really helping this kind of global collected yeah. you know network of action yeah yeah you know and, and the fact that these series blue planet 2 has probably been watched by over a billion people so you really are connecting the world through natural history. A billion people have seen you swimming yeah. on a coral reef, Steve. <laughs> Oh, I hope not, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, I'll let you into a secret. We have a group chat from a bunch of us that went to the Bahamas with you. And when that episode airs, it went mad. Oh, no. <laughs> Steve's on the telly! <laughs> it was great. Oh, it was great. Yeah. So on that, mm. is there anything that anyone... Because, I mean, the ocean's a very big place mm. and it's, it can feel very hard to have any impact over what's going on in the ocean. Mm. And we do try and always end with what can our listeners do? Is there anything really that we can do as individuals in our daily lives that has a really genuine significant impact on these ecosystems that you're looking at? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, some of the things that uh, you can do thinking about the whole planet are, you know, working out whether you can switch to renewable energy in your house, um, Mm. thinking about uh, putting a jumper on rather than turning the heating up. You know, really simple solutions that really do make a big difference in terms mm. of managing carbon dioxide emissions and um, supporting, if you have money to invest, supporting investment in mm. uh, carbon zero or even carbon negative industries that are going to yeah. help to bring carbon dioxide levels down in the atmosphere. So those are some of the big large scale things that car that you might drive or the way that you travel if you choose not to go by car if you can jump on the train rather than the plane things like that you can definitely make a difference that way Uh, one of the problems that we have in terms of the inshore water quality is sewage so actually you know working out what you're putting down the toilet and what you what you could put somewhere else i'm a surfer and i'm amazed some of the things that i'm paddling around that have come through the weirdest thing you've seen oh well I guess the freakiest thing, it's always when it's a, like a, a the arm of a doll or something <laughs> like that. 
just um you know children's toys things that are really out of context and you think yeah. if someone really Don't tried flush to flush that. that down the loo um but definitely i mean there's a lot of sanitary products um mm. you know earbuds cotton buds things like that that just don't need to be going down into the sewage system and that would make a big difference mm. um we can think about what we eat from the sea and um certainly make sustainable choices about the type of fish that we eat if we eat fish mm. and then the other thing that we can personally not change is uh, the kind of global governance and so i think something that we really ought to be doing is supporting our politicians to make braver decisions mm. and actually the politician is a bit hamstrung in that if they make bold environmental policy changes they tend to get voted out because yeah in the short term they can be expensive compared to the status quo so so giving them the confidence by and that's writing to your mp meeting your mp talking to other other kind of political groups to say look we will back you if you do this um mm. i think could make a real difference and and give uh, the governance tier within society um greater confidence to make a change so a long list there a long list yeah. that was, that was brilliant yeah um okay one like one final question before I, I let you get on with your day <laughs> um can I come on your next field trip? I have a GoPro. I have my paddy open water. I'm very happy to be useful in any capacity. Uh, it would be great to have you. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're, we're going to be... I'm, in... I mean, I'm asking you on the podcast because you can't say no. No, so. no, absolutely. It's, it's Exeter Key next Thursday. <laughs> great. <laughs> Bring your waterproofs. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Excellent. <laughs> Steve, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute treat to see you again and to catch up on what you've been up to. And I'm really excited to see where the next couple of years takes you and your research. Great to catch up, Emma. And, and well done with this podcast. It's wonderful. Oh, thank you very much. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation. I loved it at the time and I've just enjoyed editing it and listening to it all over again. So I hope you found that fascinating and I hope that maybe some of Steve's optimism has rubbed off on you and hey, maybe you've picked up a couple of new tips from him um, or at the very least, I've come away with a sense that although the ocean is a long way away for many of us and it doesn't feel like our lives interact with it much, actually there are plenty of things that you and I can do to make a little bit of a difference and have a positive impact on our on our oceans. So you can get more from us at For What It's Earth on social media. As always, we're on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. You can leave us a lovely little review on uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify now. Go on, make it five stars. That'll make my day. And of course, you can drop us an email if you fancy saying hi, letting us know what your one good thing for the week is. Or if you've got any suggestions for topics that we'd like to chat about or people that you'd like me to speak to, because Lloyd's still going to be off for a little while. You can email us at forwardatsearthpod at gmail.com. And as always, all of our opinions and things that we've said are completely our own. They are absolutely nothing to do with anyone that we work for or are affiliated with. So with that, I'll leave you all for another two weeks. We'll see you soon for another episode. Go forth and, I don't know, be green, save the oceans. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Carbon Connection, a rebroadcast of the For What It's Earth podcast. We'd like to thank Emma Brisdion, host and producer of For What It's Earth, for letting us share this episode with you. Today's episode was produced by Olabanji Steven. 
alongside Joe Petroni, Mary Pafford, and Jen Ankenman. Special thanks to Dr. Linda Erlreich for sharing this episode with us. Our editor is Tanya Marion, and our founding producer is Jennifer Meyer-Schwa. To listen to other shows in the network, like Generation Carbon, our show for kids aged 6 through 10, visit thecarbonalmanac.org slash podcast.